0: 45, A Bold Heart, A Keen and Crafty Mind Nine Years Ago Eshonai had been told that mapping the world removed its mystery. Some of the other listeners insisted the wilderness should be left uncharted, the domain of the spren and the great shells, and that by trying to confine it to paper, she risked stealing its secrets. She found this to be flat-out ridiculous. She attuned awe as she entered the forest, the trees bobbing with life-spren, bright green balls with white spines poking out. Closer to the shattered plains, most everything was flat, grown over by only the occasional rock bud. Yet here, not so far away, plants thrived in abundance. Her people made frequent trips to the forest to get lumber and mushrooms. However, they always took the exact same route. Up the river a day's walk inward, gather there, then return. This time she'd insisted on leaving the party, much to their concern. She'd promised to meet them again at their normal camp, after scouting the outer perimeter of the forest all the way around. After hiking around the trees for several days, She'd encountered a river on the other side. Now she could cut back through the heart of the forest and reach her family's camp from that direction. She'd bear with her a new map that revealed exactly how large the forest was, at least on one side. She started along the stream, attuned to joy, accompanied by swimming river spren. Everyone had been so worried about her being out in the storms alone. Well, she'd been out in storms a dozen times in her life, and had survived with no trouble. Plus, she'd been able to move in among the trees for shelter. Her family and friends were concerned, nonetheless. They spent their lives living in a very small region, dreaming of the day they could conquer one of the ten ancient cities at the perimeter of the shattered plains. Such a small-minded goal. Why not strike out? see what else there was to the world. But no, only one possible goal existed, win one of the cities, seek shelter behind crumbling walls, ignoring the barrier the woods provided. Esher and I considered it proof that nature was stronger than the creations of listeners. This forest had likely stood when the ancient cities had been new, yet this forest still thrived, and those were ruins. You couldn't steal the secrets from something so strong just by exploring it. You could merely learn. She settled down near a rock and unrolled her map, made from precious paper. Her mother was one of the few among all the families who knew the song of making paper. And with her help, Eshonai had perfected the process. She used a pen and ink to sketch the path of the river as it entered the forest then dabbed the ink until it was dry, before re-rolling the map. Though she was confident, resolve attuned, the other's complaints had been particularly bothersome lately. We know where the forest is and how to reach it. Why map its size? What will that help? The river flows this direction. Everyone knows where to find it. Why bother putting it on paper? Too many of her family wanted to pretend the world was smaller than it was. Esh was convinced that was why they continued to squabble with the other listener families. If the world consisted only of the land around the ten cities, then fighting over that land made sense. But their ancestors hadn't fought one another. Their ancestors had turned their faces to the storm and marched away, abandoning their very gods in the name of freedom. Eshenai would use that freedom. Instead of sitting by the fire and complaining, she would experience the beauties cultivation offered, and she would ask the best question of them all. What will I discover next? Eshenai continued walking, judging the river's course. She used her own methods of counting the distance, then rechecked her work by surveying sites from multiple angles. The river continued flowing for days once a storm passed. How? When all other water had drained away or been lapped up? Why did this river keep going? Where did it start? Rivers and their carapace-covered spren excited her. Rivers were markers, guideposts, roadways. You could never get lost if you knew where the river was. She stopped for lunch near one of the bends, and discovered a type of kremling that was green, like the trees she'd never seen one that shade before she'd have to tell Venley stealing nature's secrets. Escherna said to annoyance, What is a secret but a surprise to be discovered? Finishing her steamed haspers, she put out her fire and scattered the flamespren before continuing on her way by her guess. It would take her a day and a half to reach her family. Then if she left them again and rounded the other side of the forest, she'd have a finished picture of how it looked. There was so much to see, so much to know, so much to do. And she was going to discover it all. She was going to. What was that? She frowned, halting in her tracks. The river wasn't strong now. It would likely slow to a trickle by tomorrow. Over its gurgling, she heard shouts in the distance. Had the others come to find her? She hurried forward, attuning excitement. Perhaps they were growing more willing to explore. It wasn't until she was almost to the sounds that she realized something was very wrong with them. They were flat, no hint of a rhythm, as if they were made by the dead. A moment later, she rounded a bend and found herself confronted by something more wondrous and more terrible than she'd ever dared imagine. Humans. Dull form dread, with the mind most lost, Venley quoted. The lowest and one not bright. To find this form, one need banish the cost. It finds you And brings you to blight. She drew in a deep breath and sat back in their tent, proud. All ninety one stanzas recited perfectly. Her mother, Jack Slim, nodded as she worked the loom. That was one of your better recitations, she said to Praise. A little more practice, and we can move to the next song. But I got it right. You mixed up the seventh and fifteenth stanzas, her mother said. The order doesn't matter. You also forgot the nineteenth. No, I didn't, Venley said, counting them in her head. Work form? Did I? You did, her mother said. But you needn't be embarrassed. You are doing fine. Fine? Venley had spent years memorizing the songs while Eshonai barely did anything useful. Venley was better than fine. She was excellent. Except, she'd forgotten an entire stanza. She looked at her mother, who was humming softly as she worked the loom. The nineteenth stanza isn't that important, Venley said. Nobody is going to forget how to become a worker. And dull form. Why do we have a stanza about that? Nobody would willingly choose it. We need to remember the past, her mother said to the rhythm of the lost. We need to remember what we passed through to get here. We need to take care not to forget ourselves. Venley attuned annoyance, and then Jack Slim began to sing to the rhythms in a beautiful voice. There was something amazing about her mother's voice. It wasn't powerful or bold, but it was like a knife, thin, sharp, almost liquid. It cut Venley to the soul, and awe replaced her annoyance. No, Venley wasn't perfect, not yet, but her mother was Jack's limbs sang on, and Venley watched, transfixed, feeling ashamed of her earlier petulance. It was just so hard sometimes, sitting in here day after day memorizing while I played. The two of them were nearly adults, only a year off for Eshenai and a little more than two for Venley. They were supposed to be responsible. Her mother eventually trailed off after the tenth stanza. Thank you, Venley said, for singing something you've heard a thousand times. For reminding me, Venley said to praise, of what I am practicing to become. Her mother attuned joy and continued working. Venley strolled to the doorway of the tent and peered out, where family members worked at various activities, like chopping wood and felling trees. Her people were the first rhythm family and had a noble heritage. They were thousands strong but it had been many years since they'd controlled a city. They kept talking of winning one back soon, of how they'd strike out of the forest and attack before a storm, claiming their rightful seat. It was an excellent and worthy goal, yet Venley found herself dissatisfied as she watched warriors making arrows and sharpening ancient metal spears. Was this really what life amounted to? fighting back and forth over the same ten cities. Surely there was more for them. Surely there was more for her. She had come to love the songs, but she wanted to use them, find the secrets they promised. Would Rochard create someone like Venley, only to have her sit in a hog's hide tent and memorize words until she could pass them on, then die? No. She had to have some kind of destiny, something grand. I thinks we should draw pictures to represent the verses of the songs, Venley said. Make stacks of papers full of pictures so we won't forget. Your sister has a wisdom to her at times, her mother said. Venley attuned betrayal. She shouldn't be off away from the family so much, being selfish with her time. She should be learning the songs like me. It's her duty, too, as your daughter. Yes, you are correct, Jack Slim said. But Eshonai has a bold heart. She merely needs to learn that her family is more important than counting the number of hills outside the camp. I have a bold heart, Venley said. You have a keen and crafty mind, her mother said like your mother. Do not dismiss your own talents because you envy those of another. Envy? Her? Venley's mother continued weaving. She wasn't required to do such work. Her position as keeper of songs was lofty, perhaps the most important in the family. Yet her mother had always sought to keep busy. She said working her hands kept her body strong, while going over songs worked her mind. Then attuned tuned anxiety, then confidence, then anxiety again. She walked to her mother and sat on the stool next to her. Jack Slim projected confidence, even when doing something as simple as weaving. Her complex skin pattern of wavy red and black lines was among the most beautiful in the camp, like true marbled stone. Esh and I took after their mother's colorings. Venley, of course, took after her father, primarily white and red, her own pattern more like swirls. In truth, Venley's pattern had all three shades. Many people claimed they couldn't see the small patches of black at her neck, but she could pick them out. Having all three colors was very, very rare. Mother, she said to excitement. I think I've discovered something, and what would that be? I've been experimenting with different spren again, taking them into the storms. You were cautioned about this. You didn't forbid me, so I continued. Should we only ever do as we are told? Many say we need no more than work form and mate form, her mother said to consideration. They say that courting other forms is to take steps toward forms of power. What do you say? Venley asked. You are always so concerned for my opinions. Most children, when they reach your age, start to defy and ignore their parents. Most children don't have you as a mother. Flattery, Jack Slim said to amusement. Not- Entirely, Venley said. She attuned resignation. Mother, I want to use what I've learned. I have a head full of songs about forms. How can I help wanting to try to discover them? For the good of our people. Jack's limb finally stopped her weaving. She turned on her stool and scooted closer to Venley, taking her hands. She hummed, then sang softly to praise, just a melody, no words. Venley closed her eyes and let the song wash over her, and thought she could feel her mother's skin vibrating, feel her soul. Venley had done this as long as she could remember, relying on her and her songs, ever since her father had left, seeking the eastern sea. You make me proud, Venly. Jack Slim said. You've done well these last few years, memorizing after Eshonai gave up. I encourage you to seek to improve yourself. But remember, you must not become distracted. I need you. We need you. Venley nodded, then hummed the same rhythm, attuning praise to be in sync with her mother. She felt love, warmth, acceptance from those fingers and knew whatever else happened, her mother would be there to guide her, steady her, with a song that pierced even storms. Her mother returned to her weaving, and Venley began to recite again. She went through the entire thing, and this time did not miss a stanza. When she was done, she waited, taking a drink of water and hoping for her mother's praise. Instead, Jack Slim gave her something better. Tell me, she said, of these experiments with spren you've been doing. I'm trying to find war form, Venli said to anticipation. I've been staying near the edge of the shelter during storms and trying to attract the right spren. It is difficult, as most spren flee from me once the winds pick up. However, this last time I feel I was close, a pain spren is the key. They're always around during storms. If I can keep one close to me, I think I can adopt the form. If she managed it, she'd become the first listener to hold war form in many generations. Ever since the humans and the singers of old destroyed one another in their final battle, this was something she could bring her people, something that would be remembered. Let's go speak with the five, Jack Slim said. Standing up from beside the loom. Wait, Venley said, taking her arm and attuning tension. You are going to tell them what I said? About warform? Naturally. If you are going to continue on this path, we will want their blessing. Maybe I should practice more, Venley said. Before we tell anyone Jack Slim hummed to reprimand. This is like your refusal to perform the songs in public. You are afraid of exposing yourself to failure again, Venley. No, she said. No, of course not. Mother, I just think this would be better if I knew for certain it worked. Before causing trouble. Why wouldn't someone want to be certain before inviting ridicule by failing? That did not make Venley a coward. She'd adopt a new form when nobody else had that was bold. She wanted to control the circumstances, that was all. Come with me, Jack Slim said to peace. The others have been discussing this. I approached them after you asked me before. I hinted to the elders that I thought adopting new forms might be possible, and I believe they are willing to try. Really? Venley asked. Yes, come. They will celebrate your initiative. That is too rare for us in this form. It is far better than dull form, but it does affect our minds. We need other forms, despite what some might say. Venley felt herself attuning excitement as she followed her mother out of the tent. If she did obtain war form, would it open her mind? Make her even more bold? Quiet the fears and worries she often felt, she hungered for accomplishments, hungered to make their world better, less dull, more vibrant, hungered to be the one who carried her people to greatness, out of the creme and toward the skies. The five were gathered around the fire pit amid the trees, discussing offensive tactics for the upcoming battle that mostly equated to which boasts to make, and which warriors to let cast their spears first. Jack Slim stepped up to the elders and sang a full song to excitement. A rare delivery from the keeper of songs, and each stanza made Venley stand taller. Once the song was finished, Jack Slim explained what Venley had told her. Indeed, the elders were interested they realized that new forms were worth the risk. Confident that she would not be rejected, Venley stepped forward and attuned victory. As she began, however, something sounded outside of town. The warning drums? The five hastened to grab their weapons, ancient axes, spears, and swords, each one precious and passed down for generations, for the listeners had no means of creating new metal weapons. But what could this be? No other family would attack them out here in the wilderness. It hadn't happened in generations since the Pure Song family had raided the Fourth Movement family in an attempt to steal their weapons. The Pure Songers had been thoroughly shunned for that action. Venley stayed back as the elders left. She didn't wish to be involved in a skirmish, if indeed that was happening. She was an apprentice keeper of songs, and was far too valuable to risk in battle. Hopefully, whatever this was, it would be over soon, and she could return to basking in the respect of the elders. So it was that she was one of the last to hear about Eshonai's incredible discovery, among the last to learn that their world had forever been changed, and among the last to learn that her grand announcement had been utterly overshadowed by the actions of her reckless sister. 46. The Weight of the Tower I approach this project with an equal mixture of trepidation and hope, and I know not which should rule. From Rhythm of War, page 1. Raboniel denied Navani's servants. The fused apparently thought it would be a hardship for Navani to live without them. So Navani allowed herself a small moment of pride when she stepped out of her rooms on the first full day of Eurythiru's occupation. Her hair was clean and braided, her simple hava pressed and neat, her makeup done. Washing in cold water hadn't been pleasant, but the fabrils weren't working, so it wasn't as if she could expect warm water, even if she had servants. Navani was led down to the library rooms in the basement of Eurithiru. Raboniel sat at Navani's own desk, going through her notes. Upon arriving, Navani bowed precisely, just low enough to indicate obedience, but not low enough to imply subservience. The fused pushed back the chair and leaned an elbow on the desktop, then made a shooing motion with a hummed sound to dismiss the guards. What is your decision? The fused asked. I will organize my scholars, Ancient One, Navani said, and continue their research under your observation. The wiser choice. And the more dangerous one, Navani Kolen, Raboniel hummed a different tone. I do not find the schematics for your flying machine in these notes. Navani made a show of debating it, but she'd already considered this issue. The secrets of the flying platform would be impossible to keep. Too many of Navani's scholars knew them. Beyond that, many of the new style of conjoined fabrials, which allowed lateral motion while maintaining elevation, were already in use around the tower. Though Fabriel's didn't work, Raboniel's people could surely discern their operation. After a long debate with herself, she'd come to the conclusion that she needed to give up this secret. Her best hope in escaping the current predicament was to appear to be willing to work with Raboniel, while also stalling I intentionally don't keep priority schematics anywhere but in my own head, Navani lied. Instead, I explain each piece I need built to my scholars as I need them. Given time, I can draw for you the mechanism that makes the machine work. Raboniel hummed to a rhythm, but Navani couldn't tell what it represented. However, Raboniel seemed skeptical as she stood and waved for Navani to sit down. She placed a reed in Navani's hands and folded her arms to wait. Well, fine. Navani began drawing with quick, efficient lines. She made a diagram of a conjoined fabril with a quick explanation of how it worked. Then she drew the expanded vision of hundreds of them embedded into the flying machine. Yes, Raboniel said, as Navani sketched the last portions. But how do you make it move laterally? Surely with this construction, you could raise a machine high in the air, but it would have to remain there in one place. You don't expect me to believe that you have a ground machine moving in exact coordination to the one in the sky. You understand more about fabrials than I assumed, Lady of Wishes. Raboniel hummed a rhythm. I am a quick learner, she gestured to the notes on Navani's desk. In the past, my kind found it difficult to persuade Spren to manifest themselves in the physical realm as devices. It seems void spren are not as naturally self-sacrificing as those of honor or cultivation. Navani blinked as the implications of that sank in. Suddenly, a dozen loose threads in her mind tied together, forming a tapestry. An explanation. That was why the fabrials of the tower, the pumps, the climbing mechanisms, didn't have gemstones with captive Spren. Storms. That was the answer to soul-casting devices. Aw, Spren burst around her in a ring of blue smoke. Soulcasters didn't hold Spren, because they were Spren. Manifesting in the physical realm like shard blades, Spren became metal on this side. Somehow the ancient Spren had been coaxed into manifesting as soulcasters instead of blades. You didn't know, I see, Raboniel said, pulling a chair over for herself. Even sitting, she was a foot taller than Navani. She made such an odd image, a carapace-armored figure as if prepared for war, picking through notes. Odd that you should have made so many advances that we never dreamed of in Epoch's past, yet you've forgotten the far simpler method your ancestors used. We, we didn't have access to Spren who would talk to us, Navani explained. Vef's golden keys, this, I can't believe we didn't see it. The implications, lateral movement, Raboniel asked. Feeling almost in a daze, Navani sketched out the answer. We learned to isolate planes for conjoined fabrials, she explained. You have to use this construction of aluminum wires rigged to touch the gemstone. That maintains vertical position, but allows the gemstone to be moved horizontally. Fascinating, Raboniel said. Ralkalest, you call it aluminum in your language, interfering with the connection. That's quite ingenious. It must have taken a great deal of testing to get the correct configuration. Over a year's worth, Navani admitted. After the initial possibility was theorized, we have a problem that we can't move vertically and laterally at the same time. The fabrils that move us upward and downward are finicky, and we've been touching aluminum to them only after locking them into place. That's inconvenient. Yes, Navani said, but we found a system where we stop, then do our vertical motions. It can be a pain since span reeds are very difficult to make work in moving vehicles. It seems there should be a way to use this knowledge to make span reeds that can be used while moving, Raboniel said, inspecting Navani's sketch. That was my thought as well, Navani said. I put a small team on it, but we've been mostly occupied by other matters. Your weapons against our radiance still confuse me. Raboniel hummed, to a quick and dismissive rhythm. Ancient technology, barely functional, she said. We can suck the stormlight from a radiant, yes, so long as they remain hanging there impaled by one of our weapons. This method does nothing to prevent the spren from bonding a new radiant. I should like it if your spren were easier to capture in gemstones. I'll pass the request along, Navani said. Raboniel hummed to a different rhythm, then smiled. It was difficult not to see the expression as predatory on her marbled face, with its lean danger. Yet there was also something tempting about the efficiency of this interaction. A few minutes of exchange, and Navani knew secrets she'd been trying to crack for decades. This is how we end the war, Navani. Raboniel said, standing. With information shared. And this ends the war how? By showing everyone that our lives will all be improved by working together, with the singers ruling. Of course, Raboniel said. You are obviously a keen scholar, Navani If you could improve the lives of your people manyfold, is that not worth abandoning self-governance? Look what we've done in mere minutes by sharing our knowledge. Shared only because of your threats, Navani thought, careful not to show that on her face. This wasn't some free exchange. It doesn't matter what you tell me, Raboniel. You can reveal any secret you desire because I'm in your power. You can just kill me once you have everything you want. She smiled at Raboniel, however. I would like to check on my scholars, Lady of Wishes, to see how they're being treated, and find out the extent of our losses. That made one point clear, Navani hoped. Some of her friends had been murdered. She was not simply going to forget about that. Raboniel hummed, gesturing for Navani to join her. This was going to require a delicate balance, with both of them trying to play one another. Navani had to be explicitly careful not to let herself be taken in by Raboniel. That was one advantage Navani had over her scholars. She might never be worthy to join them, but she did have more experience with the real world of politics. Raboniel and Navani entered the second of the two library rooms, the one with more desks and chairs. Navani's best, ardents and scholars alike, sat on the floor, heads bowed. They'd plainly been made to sleep here, judging by the spread out blankets. A few looked up to see her, and she noted with relief that Rushu and Falilar were both unharmed. She did a quick count. Immediately picking out the notable exceptions, she stepped over to Falilar, squatting down and asking, Neshan? Inabar? Killed, Brightness, he said softly. They were in the Crystal Pillar Room, along with both of Neshan's wards, Ardent Vevanara, and a handful of unfortunate soldiers. Navani winced. Pass the word she whispered. For the time being, we are going to cooperate with the occupation. She stopped by Rushu next. I'm glad you are well. The ardent, who had obviously been crying, nodded. I was on my way down here to gather some scribes to help catalog the destruction up in that room when this happened. Brightness, do you think it's related? In the chaos, Navani had nearly forgotten the strange explosion. Did you by chance find any infused spheres in the wreckage? Specifically, a strange void light one? No, brightness, Rushu said. You saw the place. It was in shambles. But I did darken it to see if anything glowed and saw nothing. Not a hint of storm light or even void light, as Navani had feared. Whatever that explosion had been, it had to be tied to the strange sphere. And that sphere was likely now gone. Navani stood and walked back to Raboniel. You didn't need to kill my scholars during your attack. They were no threat to you. Raboniel hummed to a quick-paced rhythm. You will not be warned again, Navani. You will use my title when addressing me. I do not want to see you harmed, but there are proprieties thousands of years old that you will follow. I understand, Lady of Wishes. I think putting my remaining people to work immediately would be good for morale. What would you like us to do? To ease the transition, Raboniel said. Have them continue whatever they were doing before my arrival. Many were working on Fabrials, which will no longer function. Have them do design sketches then, Roboniel said. And write about the experiments they'd done before the occupation. I can see that their new theories get tested. Did that mean there was a way to get Fabrials working in the tower? As you wish. Then she got to work on the real problem, planning how she was going to get them out of this mess.
1: Kaladin was awakened by rain. He blinked, feeling mist on his face and seeing a jagged sky lit by spears of lightning frozen in place, not fading, just hanging there, framed by black clouds in a constant boil. He stared at the strange sight, then rolled to his side, half-submerged in a puddle of frigid water. Was this Hearthstone? The war camps? No? Neither? He groaned, forcing himself to his feet. He didn't appear to be wounded, but his head was pounding. No weapons. He felt naked without a spear. Gusts of rain blew around him, the falling water moving in sheets, and he swore he could see the outlines of figures in the rainfall, as if it were making momentary shapes as it fell. The landscape was dark, evoking distant crags. He started through the water, Surprised to see no spren around, not even rain spren. He thought he saw light atop a hill, so he started up the incline, careful not to lose his footing on the slick rock. A part of him wondered why he could see. The frozen, jagged lightning bolts didn't give off much illumination. Hadn't he been in a place like this once? With omnipresent light, but a black sky? He stopped and stared upward, rain scouring his face. This was all... All wrong. This wasn't real, was it? Motion. Kaladin spun. A short figure moved down the hill toward him, emerging from the darkness. It seemed composed entirely of swirling grey mist with no features, though it wielded a spear. Kaladin caught the weapon with a quick turn of his hand, then twisted and pushed back in a classic disarming move. This phantom attacker wasn't terribly skilled, and Kaladin easily stole the weapon. Instinct took command, and he spun the spear and rammed it through the figure's neck. As the short figure dropped, two more appeared as if from nothing, both wielding spears of their own. Kaladin blocked one strike and threw the attacker off with a calculated shove, then spun and dropped the other with a sweep to the legs. He stabbed that figure with a quick thrust to the neck, then easily rammed his spear into the stomach of the other one as it stood up. Blood ran down the spear's shaft onto Kaladin's fingers. He yanked the spear free as the smoky figure dropped. It felt good to hold a spear, to be able to fight without worries, without anything weighing him down other than the rainwater on his uniform. Fighting used to be simple before, before. The swirling mist evaporated off the fallen figures and he found three young messenger boys in Amaram's colors, killed by Kaladin's spear. Three corpses, including his brother, No! Kaladin screamed, ragged and hateful. How dare you show me this! It didn't happen that way! I was there! He turned away from the corpses, looking toward the sky. I didn't kill him! I just failed him! I... I just... He stumbled away from the dead boys and dropped his spear, hands to his head. He felt the scars on his forehead. They seemed deeper, like chasms cutting through his skull. Shash! Dangerous. Thunder rumbled overhead, and he stumbled downhill, unable to banish the sight of Tien dead and bleeding on the hillside. What kind of terrible vision was this? You saved us so we could die, a voice said from the darkness. He knew that voice. Kaladin spun, splashing in the rainwater, searching for the source. He was on the shattered plains now. In the rain, he saw the suggestions of people. Figures made by the falling drops, but somehow empty. The figures began attacking each other, and he heard the thunder of war. Men shouting, weapons clashing, boots on stone. It surrounded him, overwhelmed him, until, in a flash, he emerged into an enormous battle, the suggested shapes becoming real. Men in blue fighting against other men in blue. Stop fighting, Kaladin shouted at them. You're killing your own! They're all our soldiers. They didn't seem to hear him. Blood flowed beneath his feet instead of rainwater, sprays and gushes melding as spearmen climbed eagerly over the bodies of the fallen to continue killing one another. Kaladin grabbed one spearman and pushed him away from another, then seized a third and pulled him back, only to find that it was Lopin. Lopin, Kaladin said. Listen to me. Stop fighting. Lopin bared his teeth in a terrible grin, then knocked Kaladin aside before launching himself at yet another figure, Rock, who had stumbled on a corpse. Lopin killed him with a spear through the gut, but then Teft killed Lopin from behind. Bissig stabbed Teft, and Kaladin didn't see who brought him down. He was too horrified. Sigzel dropped nearby with a hole in his side, and Kaladin caught him. Why, Sigzel asked, blood dribbling from his lips, why didn't you let us sleep? This isn't real. This can't be real. You should have let us die on the Shuttered Plains. I wanted to protect you, Kaladin shouted. I had to protect you. You cursed us. Kaladin dropped the dying body and stumbled away. He ducked his head, his mind cloudy, and started running. A part of him knew this horror wasn't real, but he could still hear the screaming, accusing him. Why did you do this, Kaladin? Why have you killed us? He pressed his hands to his ears, so intent on escaping the carnage that he nearly ran straight into a chasm. He pulled up, teetering on the edge. He stumbled, then looked to his left. The war camps were there, up a short slope. He'd been here. He remembered this place, this storm, lightly raining, this chasm, where he'd nearly died. You saved us, a voice said, so we could suffer. Moash, he stood on the edge of the chasm near Kaladin. The man turned and Kaladin saw his eyes, black pits. People think you were merciful to us, but we both know the truth, don't we? You did it for you, not us. If you were truly merciful, you'd have given us easy deaths. No, Kaladin said. No! The void awaits Cal. Moash said. The emptiness, it lets you do anything. Even kill a king without regret. One step. You'll never have to feel pain again. Moash took a step and dropped into the chasm. Kaladin fell to his knees on the edge, rain streaming around him. He stared down in horror, then started awake someplace cold. Immediately a hundred pains coursed through his joints and muscles, each demanding his attention like a screaming child. He groaned and opened his eyes, but there was only darkness. I'm in the tower, he thought, remembering the events of the previous day. Storms. The place is controlled by the fused. I barely got away. The nightmares seemed to be getting worse. Or they'd always been this bad, but he didn't remember. He lay there, breathing deeply, sweating as if from exertion, and remembered the sight of his friends dying. Remembered Moash stepping into that darkness and vanishing. Sleeping was supposed to refresh you, but Kaladin felt more tired than when he'd collapsed. He groaned and put his back to the wall, forcing himself to sit up. Then he felt around in a sudden panic. In his addled state, a part of him thought for sure he'd find Teft dead on the floor. He let out a sigh of relief as he located his friend lying nearby, still breathing. The man had wet himself, unfortunately. He'd grow dehydrated quickly if Kaladin didn't do something, and the potential for Rotspren was high if Kaladin didn't get him cleaned up and properly situated with a bedpan. Storms! The weight of what Kaladin had done hung above him, nearly as oppressive as the weight of the tower. He was alone, lost in the darkness, without stormlight or anything to drink, let alone proper weapons. He needed to take care of not only himself, but a man in a coma. What had he been thinking? He didn't believe the nightmare, but he couldn't completely banish its echoes either. Why? Why couldn't he have let go? Why did he keep fighting? Was it really for them? Or was it because he was selfish, because he couldn't let go and admit defeat? Sill, he asked in the darkness. When she didn't answer him, he called again, his voice trembling. Sill, where are you? No reply. He felt around his enclosure and realized he had no idea how to get out. He'd entombed himself and Teft here in this too-thick darkness to die slow deaths alone. Then a pinprick of light appeared. Sill blessedly, entered the enclosure. She couldn't pass through walls. Radiant Spren had enough substance in the physical realm that they were impeded by most materials. Instead, she appeared to have come in through some sort of vent high in the wall. Her appearance brought with it a measure of his sanity. He released a shuddering breath as she flitted down and landed on his outstretched palm. I found a way out, she said, taking the shape of a soldier wearing a scout uniform. I don't think you'd be able to get through it, though. Even a child would be cramped. I looked around, though I couldn't go too far. Guards are posted at many stairwells, but they don't seem to be searching for you. These floors are big enough that I think they've realized finding one man in here is virtually impossible. That's some good news, I guess, Kaladin said. Do you have any idea what that light was that led me in here? I have a theory, Sill said. A long time ago, before things went poorly between Spren and humans, there were three bondsmiths. One was the Stormfather, one for the Night Watcher, and one other, for a Spren called the Sibling, a Spren who remained in this tower Hidden, and did not appear to humans. They were supposed to have died long ago. Huh, Kaladin said, feeling at the door that had opened to let him in. What were they like? I don't know, Sill said, moving to his shoulder. We've talked to Brightness Navani about this, answering her questions, and the other Radiant Spren didn't know more than I just said. Remember, many of the Spren who knew about the old days died. "'and the sibling was always secretive. "'I don't know what kind of spren they were "'or why they could create a bondsmith. "'If they are alive, though, "'I don't know why so much in the tower doesn't work.' "'Well, this wall worked,' Caledon said, "'finding the gemstone in the wall. "'The gem was dark now, "'but it was also much more prominent on this side. "'He could easily have missed it from the other direction.' How many other rooms had such gemstones embedded in the wall hiding secret doors? He touched the gemstone. Despite the fact that he didn't have any more stormlight, light light appeared deep inside it. A white light that twinkled like a star. It expanded into a small burst of stormlight and the door suddenly split open again. Kaladin let out a long breath and felt a little of his panic wash away. He wouldn't die in the darkness. Once the gemstone was charged, it worked like any other fabrile, continuing to function so long as it had remaining stormlight. He looked to Syl. Think you can find your way back here to Teft if we leave and do some scouting? I should be able to memorize our path. Great, Kaladin said, because we need supplies. He couldn't afford to think about the long term yet. Those daunting questions, what he was going to do about the tower, the dozens of radiance in enemy captivity, his family, would need to wait. First he needed water, food, stormlight, and, most importantly, a better weapon. Annotated Map of the War in Emul Emul is to the southeast of Asia and southwest of the mountains where Yurathiru is located. Odium's forces control the southern half of the country, including the Dronmu Basin. The Coalition's forces control the northern half. The town of Lucky is just inside the Emuli border, due east of Azimir. Ishar's army has been seen in the northeastern corner of Tukar, south of the Drunmu Basin. 47. A Cage of Forged Spirits I approached this project with inspiration renewed. The answers are all that should matter. From Rhythm of War, page one, under text. The wood lurched under Delinar's feet and he grabbed a railing to steady himself. Skybreakers, he shouted. Trying to get at the Fabrail housings. Two figures in blue leaped off the deck nearby, bursting with light as the platform continued to shake. Two wouldn't be able to handle this. Stormit, where was- Sigzel and his force of ten wind runners? came swooping back, striking at the underside of the flying formation. It wasn't truly a flying machine like the fourth bridge, but these platforms were nevertheless an excellent vantage for viewing a battlefield, assuming they didn't get attacked. Delinar held firm to the railing, glancing at the mink, who was tethered to Delinar with a rope. The shorter man was grinning wildly as he clung to the railing. Fortunately, the platform soon stopped lurching and the skybreakers scattered, trailed by figures in blue with spears. Fewer heavenly ones than I'd have expected, Dalinar noted as the wind ruffled his hair. He picked out only four of the flying fused watching the battlefield from above, and occasionally delivering instructions to the ground troops. They didn't engage. They're leaning on the skybreakers for this battle. Perhaps the bulk of the Heavenly Ones were with the main enemy forces, stationed several days' march away. The mink leaned out over the side of the platform, trying to get a view directly beneath, where radiance were clashing. He didn't seem at all bothered by the 300-yard drop to the ground. For a man who always seemed so paranoid, he could certainly be cavalier regarding danger. Beneath them the battle lines held formation. Delanor's troops, augmented by ranks of Azish, fought Terevangian's treasonous forces, who had tried to strike inward to rescue their king. The Vadans were accompanied by a small number of fused and some singer troops, a small enough force to have moved in close without detection before the betrayal. On Delanor's platform, some fifty archers reformed their ranks following the chaos of the sudden skybreaker attack. In moments, they were sending a hail of arrows on the Vedans. They'll break soon, the mink said softly, surveying the battlefield. Their line is bowing. Those Azish fight well. Better than I thought they would. They have excellent discipline, Dalinar agreed. They simply needed proper direction. Any given Azish soldier was no match for an Alethi, but after witnessing their discipline this last year... Delinar was grateful he'd never had to face their infantry in battle. The vast blocks of Azish pikes were less mobile than the Alethi equivalent, but were impeccably coordinated. They were a tremendous addition to an Alethi system, which had far more flexibility and a variety of specialized troops. Using Azish blocks like wedges and Alethi tactics— They'd been able to stand against the enemy despite their natural advantages, like carapace armor and stronger builds. And the Vaden traders? Well, the mink was right. The enemy line was beginning to bow and crack. They had no cavalry, and the mink made a quiet order to one of the waiting scribes who transferred it. Dalinar guessed, correctly, he'd ordered a harrying strike of light riders along the left flank. Those filled the Vaden back rows with arrows distracting them to further stress the wavering lines. Oh, I do have to admit, the mink said to Dalinar as they watched, bowstrings snapping behind them, this is an excellent way to oversee a battlefield. And you were worried about there being no escape. Rather, the Mink said, looking toward the ground below. I was worried about all avenues of escape being interrupted by an unfortunate collision with the ground. Still don't know the wisdom of putting us both up here. Seems like we should be on separate platforms, so that if one falls, the other can continue to lead our forces. You mistake my purpose, Dieno, Dalinar said, tugging on the rope that bound them. My job in this battle isn't to command if you are killed. It's to get you out before you are killed. One of Yasna's escape boats waited on the other side in Shadesmar. In an emergency, Dalinar could get himself and the mink through the perpendicularity. They'd drop a short distance, but not nearly as far as they would on this side, into a padded ship with mandras hooked in place. The mink, unsurprisingly, didn't like that escape route. He couldn't control it. In truth, Dalinar wasn't a 100% comfortable with it himself. He didn't fully trust his powers yet. His mastery over them was tenuous. He opened the perpendicularity as the Windrunners approached for more stormlight. He managed to open it only a sliver, renewing those nearby but preventing the Skybreakers from partaking. They retreated. Skybreakers couldn't match Windrunners, who were being constantly renewed, and were usually deployed on battlefields where Dalinar was not present. As the mink took casualty reports, which included two Windrunner squires, unfortunately, a young scribe stepped up to Dalinar with a sheaf of papers and a blinking span read. Word from your theory, bright Brightlord, she said. You wanted to know as soon as we heard something, and we have. Dalinar felt a huge weight slide off his shoulders. Finally, what is happening? Trouble with the Tower Fabriels, the scribe reported. Brightness Navani saw that some kind of strange defensive aura had been deployed, preventing Radiance from using their powers. It also interferes with Fabriels. She had to send a scouting team out along the ridge into the mountains before they were able to deliver her message. Everyone is safe and she's working on the problem. That is why the oath gates have stopped working, however. She begs for your patience and asks if anything strange has happened here. Tell her about Terevengian's betrayal, Dalinar said but report that I'm safe, as is our family. We are fighting the traitors and should soon win the day. She nodded and went to send the message. The mink stepped closer. He'd either overheard or had received a similar report. They're trying to confuse and distract us during the betrayal, he said, heaping attacks on multiple fronts. Another ploy to negate the oath gates, Dalinar agreed. That device they used on High Marshal Kaladin must have been some sort of test. They've knocked out Eurytheru for a while to isolate us. The mink leaned out, squinting at the armies below. Something about this smells wrong, Blackthorn. If this was merely a ploy to isolate the fighting in Aesir and Emil, they've made a tactical mistake. Their forces in this part of the land are exposed, and we have the upper hand. They wouldn't go through so much effort to block us from the Oath Gates unless it were truly cutting off our escape route, which it won't because we're not going to need one. You think this is a distraction from something else? The mink nodded slowly. Far below, the cavalry did another sweep. The line of the traitors buckled further. I'll tell the others to watch out, Dalinar said, and send scouts to investigate Eurythiru. I agree. Something about this is off. Make certain the armies we're going to fight in Emul haven't been secretly reinforced. That could be terrible for us. The only true disaster I can envision here is Azimir being besieged and unable to be resupplied via the Oath Gates. Having seen that city, I'd hate to be trapped there. Agreed, Dalinar said. The Mink leaned out further, precariously as he watched the battlefield below. It was hard to hear muffled clangs, shouts from far away. Men moved like life spren. But Dalinar could smell the sweat, could hear the roar, could feel himself standing among the struggling, screaming, dying bodies, and dominating with blade in hand. Once you'd tasted the near invincibility of wearing plate and wading in among mortals, it was a difficult flavor to forget. You miss it, the mink said, eyeing him. Yes, Dalinar admitted. I could use you on the ground. Down there I'd merely be another sword. I can do more in other positions. Pardon, Blackthorn, but you were never merely another sword. The mink crossed his arms, leaning against the wooden railing. You keep saying you're more use elsewhere and I suppose you make a pretty good storm for Renewing Spheres. But I can sense you stepping away. What are you planning? That was the question. He sensed there was so much more for him to do. Greater things, important things, the tasks of a bondsmith. But getting to them, figuring them out. They're breaking, the mink said, standing up straight. You want to let them go? Or pin them and crush them. What do you think? Delanor asked. I hate fighting men who feel they have no way out, the mink said. We can't afford to let them reinforce the enemy to the south, Delanor said. That would be their true battlefield once this skirmish was over. The war for Emul. Keep pressing them until they surrender. The mink began giving the orders. Far below, drums washed over the battlefield the frantic attempts by enemy commanders to maintain discipline as the lines disintegrated. He could almost hear their shouted, panic-tinged cries, desperation in the air. The mink is right, Delanor thought. They made a real effort here to strike at us, but something is wrong. We're missing a piece of the enemy's plan. As he was watching, a nondescript soldier stepped up beside him. Dalinar had brought only a handful of bodyguards today, three men from the Cobalt Guard, and a single shard-bearer. Cord, the Horneater woman, who had taken it upon herself to join his guards for reasons he didn't quite understand. He also held a hidden weapon, the man who stood beside him, so ordinary in his Alethi uniform, holding a sheathed sword that was admittedly longer than regulation. Zeth, the assassin in white, wearing a false face. He didn't speak, though the complex light-weaving he wore would disguise his voice. He simply watched, his eyes narrowed. What did he see in this battlefield? What had caught his attention? Zeth suddenly grabbed Dalinar by the front of his uniform and towed him to the side. Dalinar barely had time to shout in surprise as a glowing figure rose up beside the archer platform, radiant with stormlight and bearing a silvery blade. Zeth stepped between Dalinar and the Skybreaker, hand going to his sword, but Dalinar caught him by the arm, preventing him from drawing it. Once that weapon came out, dangerous things happened. They would want to be absolutely certain it was needed before unleashing it. The figure was familiar to Dalinar. Dark brown skin with a birthmark on his cheek. Nalan, called Nail, herald and leader of the Skybreakers. He had shaved his head recently and held out his blade in a defiant, perhaps challenging posture as he addressed Dalinar. Bondsmith, Nail said, your war is unjust. You must submit to the laws of the. An arrow slammed into his face, dead center interrupting him. Dalinar glanced back, then stopped Cord, who was drawing her shardbow again. Wait, I'd hear him. Nail, with a suffering expression, pulled the arrow free and dropped it, letting his stormlight heal him. Could this man be killed? Ash said the enemy had somehow killed Jesrian, but before, when heralds died, their souls had returned to damnation to await torture. Nail didn't continue his diatribe. He lightly stepped up onto the railing of the platform, then dropped to the deck. He tossed his blade away, letting it vanish to mist in midair. How are you a bondsmith? Nail asked Dalinar. You should not exist, Blackthorn. Your cause is not righteous. You should be denied the true surges of honor. Perhaps it is a sign that you are wrong, Nalan, Dalinar said. Perhaps our cause is righteous. No, Nail said. Other Radiants can lie to themselves and their spren. So-called honor spren prove that morality is shaped by their perceptions. You should be different. Honor should not allow this bonding. Honor is dead, Delanor said. And yet, Nail said, honor still should prevent this. Prevent you. He looked Delanor up and down. No shard blade, fair enough. He launched forward, reaching for Dalinar. Zeth was upon him in a moment, but hesitated to draw his strange blade. Nail moved with a sky grace, twisting Zeth about and slamming him to the deck of the wooden platform. The herald slapped aside Zeth's sheathed sword, punching him in the crook of the elbow and making him drop his weapon. Nail casually reached up and caught the arrow launched from Kord's shard bow mere feet away. An inhuman feat. Dalinar pressed his hands together, reaching beyond reality for the perpendicularity. Nail leaped over Zeth toward Dalinar as the others on the platform shouted, trying to react to the attack. No, the Stormfather said to Dalinar. Touch him. Dalinar hesitated, the power of the perpendicularity at his fingertips, then reached out and pressed his hand to Nail's chest as the herald reached for him. Flash. Dalinar saw Nail stepping away from a discarded blade rammed into the stone. Flash, Nail cradling a child in one arm, his blade out as dark forces crawled across a ridge nearby. Flash, Nail standing with a group of scholars and unrolling a large writ filled with writing. The law cannot be moral, Nail said to them. But you can be moral as you create laws. Ever must you protect the weakest, those most likely to be taken advantage of. Institute a right of movement so that a family who feels their lord is unrighteous can leave this area. Then tie a lord's authority to the people who follow him. Flash. Nail kneeling before a high spren. Flash. Nail fighting on a battlefield. Flash. Another fight. Flash. Another fight. The visions came faster and faster. Dalinar could no longer distinguish one from another until... Flash. Nail clasping hands with a bearded Alethi man... "'regal and wise. "'Delanor knew this was Yuzereza, "'though he couldn't say how. "'I will take this charge,' "'Neil said softly. "'With honor. "'Do not consider it an honor,' Yazareza said. "'A duty, yes, "'but not an honor. "'I understand, "'though I had not expected "'you would come to an enemy "'with this offer.' "'An enemy, yes,' Yzareza said, but an enemy who was correct all along, making me the villain, not you. We will fix what we've broken, Ishar and I agreed. There is no person we would welcome more eagerly into this pact than you. You are the single most honorable man I have ever had the privilege of opposing. I wish that were true, Nail said but I will serve as best I can. The vision faded and Nail lurched away from Dalinar, gasping, his eyes wide. He left a line of light stretching between him and Dalinar. Bond, Smith, the Stormfather said in Dalinar's mind. You forged a brief connection with him. What did you see? His past, I think, Dalinar whispered. And now... Nail scratched at his head, and Dalinar saw a skeletal figure overlapping him. Like the echo of light that followed Zeth, only worn, dim. Dalinar stepped forward, walking among his stunned bodyguards, noting eight lines of light extending from Nail into the distance. I see the oath pact, I think, Dalinar said. The thing that bound them together and made them capable of holding the enemy in damnation. A cage forged of their spirits, the Stormfather said in his mind. It was broken. Even before Jezrean's death, they shattered it by what they did long ago. No, only one line of it is completely broken. The rest are here, but weak, impotent. Delinar pointed to one line, bright and powerful. Except one still vibrant. Nail looked up at him, then ripped free of the line of light connecting him to Dalinar and threw himself off the platform. The herald burst alight and shot away as, belatedly, a few windrunners came to Dalinar's aid. You wield the power of gods, Dalinar, the Stormfather said. I once thought I knew the extent of your abilities. I have abandoned that ignorant supposition. Could I reforge it, Dalinar asked. Could I remake the Oath Pact and bind the fused away again? I do not know. It may be possible, but I have no idea how. Or if it would be wise, the heralds suffer for what they did. I saw that in him, Dalinar said, watching as Nail vanished in the distance. He is burdened with a terrible pain that warps how he sees reality. An insanity unlike the ones that afflict ordinary men. An insanity that has to do with his worn soul. Zeth recovered his sword, seeming ashamed he'd been so easily bested. Dalinar did not fault him nor the others who insisted that he and the mink retreat from the battlefield now that the rout of Terebangian's troops was fully in progress. Dalinar let the Windrunners spirit him away. All the while, he was lost in thought. He needed to understand his powers. His duty was no longer to stand with a sword held high, shouting orders on the battlefield. He instead needed to find a way to use his abilities to solve this war. Reforge the Oath Pact, or barring that, find another solution. One that included binding odium once and for all.
0: 48. Scent of Death. Scent of Life. Nine years ago. There was more than one way to explore. It turned out you could do it from the center of your own tent, if a group of living relics walked out of the forest and came to visit. The humans thrilled Eshonai. They hadn't been destroyed after all, and their ways were so strange. They spoke without rhythm and couldn't hear the songs of Rochar. They made carapace out of metal and tied it to themselves. Though she first assumed they had lost their forms, she soon realized that they had only a single form and could never change. They had to deal with the passions of mate form all the time. More intriguing, They brought with them a tribe of dull-formed creatures who also had no songs. They had skin patterns like the listeners, but didn't talk, let alone sing. Esher and I found them fascinating and disturbing. Where had the humans found such strange individuals? The humans made camp across the river in the forest, and at first the five let only a few listeners come to meet them. They worried about frightening away the strange humans if the entire family came to bother them. Eshenai thought this foolish. The humans wouldn't grow frightened. They knew ancient things. Methods of forging metal and of writing sounds on paper. Things that the listeners had forgotten during the long sleep. The time they'd spent wearing dull form, memorizing songs by sheer force of will. Eshenai played and a few others joined a few human scholars, trying to decipher one another's tongues. Preserved in the songs, fortunately, were human phrases. Perhaps her past with the songs was what helped I learn faster than the others, or maybe it was her stubbornness. She spent evenings sitting with the humans, making them repeat sounds over and over late into the night by the light of their brilliant glowing gemstones. That was another thing. Human gemstones glowed far more brightly than listener ones. It had to do with the way the gemstones were cut and shaped. Each day with the humans taught her something new. Once the language barrier began to fall, the humans asked if they could be taken out onto the shattered plains. So it was that Eshonai led the way, though she kept them far from the ten ancient cities and the other listener families. For now. Using one of Eshonai's maps, they approached from the north and walked along the chasms until they reached an ancient listener bridge. The rift in the stone smelled of wet, rotting plants, pungent, but not unpleasant. Where plants rotted, others often soon grew, and the scent of death was the same as the scent of life. The humans followed gingerly across the bridge of wood and rope the guards going first, wearing their buffed metal carapace breastplates and caps. They seemed to expect the bridge to collapse at any moment. Once across, Eshonai stepped up onto a boulder and took a deep breath, feeling the winds. Overhead, a few windsprens swirled in the sky. Once the guards had crossed, some of the others started over as well. Everyone had wanted to come see the planes, where the monsters of the chasms lived. One of the attendants was a curious woman who was the surgeon's assistant. She climbed up onto the rock beside Eshonai, though her clothing, which enveloped her from neck to ankles and covered up her left hand for some reason, wasn't particularly good for exploring. It was nice to see that there were some things that the listeners had figured out that the humans hadn't. What do you see? she asked Eshonai in the human tongue. When you look at the spren. Eshonai hummed to consideration. What did she mean? I see spren, Eshonai said, speaking slowly and deliberately, as her accent was sometimes bad. Yes, what do they look like? Long, white lines. Eschenai said, pointing at the windspin. Holes, small holes, is there a word? Pinpricks, perhaps. Pinpricks in sky, Eschenai said, and tails long, very long. Curious, the woman said. She wore a lot of rings on her right hand, though Eshanai couldn't tell why. It seemed like they would get caught on things. It is different, Different, Eshenai said. We see different? Yes, the woman said. You seem to see the reality of the spren, or closer to it. Tell me, we have stories among the humans of windspren that act like people, taking different shapes, playing tricks. Have you ever seen one like that? i went over the words in her mind. She thought she understood some of it, Spren, like people, act like people. Yes, I have seen this, she said. Excellent, and when Spren, that talk, that call you by name, have you met any like this? What, Eshonai said, attuning amusement. Spren talking? No, it seems not real, fake, but a story? "'Fanciful,' is perhaps the word you want. "'Fanciful,' Eshonai said, examining the sounds in her mind. "'Yes, there was more than one way to explore.' The king and his brother finally crossed onto the plateau. King was not a new word to her, as it was mentioned in the songs. There had been debate among the listeners whether they should have a monarch. It seemed to Eshonai that until they managed to stop squabbling and become a single unified people, the discussion was silly. The king's brother was a brutish man, who seemed like a slightly different breed from everyone else. He was the first she'd met, along with a group of human scouts back in the forest. This human wasn't simply larger than most of the others. He walked with a different step. His face was harder. If a human could ever be said to have a form, this man was war form. The king himself, though, he was proof that humans didn't have forms. He was so erratic, sometimes loud and angry, other times quiet and dismissive. Listeners had different emotions, too, of course. It was just that this man seemed to defy explanation. Perhaps the fact that the humans spoke with no rhythms made her more surprised when they acted with such passion. He was also the only male in the group who wore a beard. Why was that? Guide, the king said, walking up to her. Is this where the hunts happen? Sometimes, she said. Depends. It is season, so maybe they come, maybe not. The king nodded absently. He had taken little interest in her, any of the listeners. His scouts and scholars, however, seemed as fascinated by Eshonai as she was with them, so she tended to spend time with them. What kind of great shells can live here? The brother asked. There doesn't seem to be space for them, with all these cracks in the ground. Are they like white spines, jumping from place to place? White spine, she said, not knowing the word. The woman with the rings brought out a book with a drawing in it for her. Esher shook her head. No, not that. They are, how to explain the monsters of the chasms. They are great and large and powerful. They, these lands are theirs. And do your people worship them? One of the scholars asked. Worship? Reverence. Respect. Yes? Who wouldn't respect a beast so mighty? They're gods, Brightlord, said the scribe to the king. As I suspected, they worship these beasts. We must take care with future hunts. I hummed to anxiety to indicate she was confused. But they didn't recognize this. They had to say everything with words. Here, the king said, pointing. This plateau seems a good enough place for a break. The human attendants began unpacking their things. Tents made of a marvelous tough cloth and a variety of foods. They enjoyed their lunches, these humans. Their traveling luxury was so opulent, it made Eshonai wonder what their homes were like. Once they left, she intended to see. If they'd made it here without a properly durable form such as work form, then they must not have come that far, she attuned amusement. After all these years with no contact, she likely would have found her way to their home on her own, given a few more months. Esher and I kept busy by helping erect the tents. She wanted to figure out the pieces, She was fairly certain she could carve poles like the ones used for holding up the roof. But the cloth was lighter, smoother, than what the listeners could create. One of the workers was having trouble with a knot, so Eshonai took out her knife to cut it free. What is that? A voice said from behind her. Do you mind showing me that knife? It was the woman with the rings. Eshonai had thought she might be once mates with the king, considering how often she spoke with him, but apparently there was no relation. Eshonai glanced down, realizing that she'd brought out her good hunting knife. It was one of the weapons her ancestors had salvaged from the ruins at the center of the plains, with beautiful metal that had lines in it and a carved hilt of majestic detail. She shrugged and showed it to the woman. The strange woman, in turn, waved urgently to the king. He left the shade and stepped over, taking the knife and narrowing his eyes as he studied it. Where did you get this? He asked Eshonai. It is old, she said, not wanting to say too much. Handed down, generations. Lasting back to the false desolation, perhaps? The woman asked the king. Could they really have weapons two thousand years old? The listener shard blades were far more marvelous, but Eshonai didn't speak of those. Her family didn't own any, anyway. I would like to know, the king said. How you he was interrupted by a trumping in the near distance. Eshonai spun attuning tension. Monster of chasms, she said get soldiers. I did not think one would come close. We can handle her, the king began, but trailed off and his eyes became wide. An oarspren approached, a floating blue ball of a creature that expanded with great enthusiasm. Eshenai turned and saw a distant shadow emerging from a chasm, sleek yet strong, powerful yet graceful. The beast walked on numerous legs and didn't bestow the humans with a glance. They were to it as it was to the sun. Indeed, it turned upward at the light to bask. Gorgeous and mighty, as if the rhythm of awe had been given life. Blood of my father's, the king's brother said, stepping up. How big is that thing? Bigger than any we have in Alaskar the king said. You'd have to make your way to the Herdazian coast to come across a great shell so large, but those live in the waters. These live in chasms, Eshonai whispered. It doesn't seem angry, which is our fortune. It might be far enough away that it hasn't noticed us, the king's brother said. It noticed us, Eshenai said. It simply doesn't care. Others gathered around, and the king hushed them. Finally, the chasm fiend turned and looked them over. Then it slunk down into the chasm, trailed by a few shimmering chasm spren, like arrows in flight. Storms, the king's brother said. You mean at any time, standing on these plateaus, one of those might be right below? Prowling about? How can they live in those chasms? one of the women asked. What do they eat? It was a more solemn and quick group that returned to their lunch. They were eager to finish and leave, but none of them said it, and none hummed to anxiety. Of them all, only the king seemed unperturbed. While the others busied themselves, he continued studying Eshonai's knife which he hadn't returned to her. You truly kept these for thousands of years? He asked. No, she admitted. We found them, not my parents. Their parents' parents, in the ruins. Ruins, you say? He looked up sharply. What ruins? Those cities the other guide mentioned? Eshonai cursed Clade softly for having mentioned the ten cities. Deciding not to clarify that she meant the ruins at the center of the plains, she attuned anxiety. The way he inspected her made her feel like she was a map that had been drawn wrong. My people built cities, she said. Old parents of my people. You don't say, he said. Very curious. You remember those days, then? You have records of them? We have songs, she said. Many songs, important songs. They talk of the forms we bore, the wars we fought, how we left the... I don't know the word. The ones of old, who ruled us. When the Neshua Kadal were fighting with Spren as companions and had, had things they could do. Radiance, he said, his voice growing softer. Your people have stories about the night's radiant? Yes, maybe, she said. I can't words yet of this. Curious, curious. As she'd expected, The humans decided to return to the forest soon after their meal. They were frightened, all but the king. He spent the entire trip asking about the songs. She had plainly been mistaken when she'd assumed he didn't care much about the listeners. For from that moment on, he seemed very, very interested. He had his scholars interrogate them about songs, lore, and whether they knew of any other ruins. When the humans finally left for their lands several days later, King Gavilar gave Eshonai's people a gift, several crates of modern weapons made of fine steel. They were no replacement for the ancient weapons, but not all of her people had those. No family had enough to outfit all their warriors. All Gavilar wanted in exchange was a promise that when he returned in the near future, He wanted to find Eshonai's people housed in one of the cities at the edge of the plains. At that time, he said, he hoped to be able to hear from the keepers of songs in person. 49. Soul of Discovery. In my fevered state, I worry I'm unable to focus on what is important. From Rhythm of War, page 3. Navani set to work organizing her scholars under the careful supervision of a large number of singer guards. The situation left Navani with a delicate problem. She didn't want to give away more than was absolutely necessary, but if she failed to make progress, Raboniel would eventually notice and take action. For now, Navani set the scholars to doing some busy work. The singers kept her people enclosed in a single one of the two library rooms, so Navani had the wards and younger ardents begin cleaning the room. They gathered up old projects and boxes of notes, then carried them out to stack them in the hallway. They needed to make space. She assigned the more experienced scholars to do revision work, going back over projects and either checking calculations or drawing new sketches. Ardents brought out fresh ledgers to go over figures, while Rushu unrolled large schematics and set several younger women to measuring each and every line. This would take up several days, perhaps longer, and it was also quite a natural thing to do. Navani frequently ordered recalculations after an interruption. It restored the scholars to a proper mindset, and they sometimes found legitimate errors. Soon enough, she had an orderly room full of calming sounds, papers shuffling, pens writing, people quietly discussing. No creation spren or logic spren, as often attended exciting work. Hopefully the singers in the room wouldn't realize that was odd. Those singers were always underfoot, lingering close enough to overhear what Navani told her people. She'd grown accustomed to a clean workspace, giving her people enough freedom to innovate, but also enough careful corralling to keep them innovating in the proper direction. All of these guards undermined that effort, and Navani often caught her scholars glancing up and staring at some armed brute standing nearby. At least most were merely common soldiers. Only one fused, other than Raboniel, stayed near the scholars. And she wasn't one of those unnerving ones who could meld with the rock. No, this was a fused of Raboniel's same type, a tall fused with a topknot and a long face marbled white and red. The femalean sat on the floor, watching them. Her eyes glazed over. Navani kept covert watch over this fused during the morning work. She'd been told that many fused were unhinged, and this one seemed to fit that description. She often stared off into nothingness, then giggled to herself. She would let her head flop from one side to the other. Why would Raboniel put this one here to watch them? Were there possibly so few sane fused left that there was no other choice? Navani leaned against the wall, touching her palms to the stone, where a vein of garnet ran almost imperceptibly along one line of strata and pretended to watch as several young women carried boxes of papers out into the hallway. You didn't talk to me last night, the sibling said. I was being watched, Navani said under her breath. They didn't let me stay in my own rooms, but took me to a smaller room. We'll need to talk here. You can hear me if I speak very softly like this? Yes. Can you see what Raboniel is doing? She had some workers set up a desk near the shield, where she is doing tests upon it to see if she can get through. Can she? I don't know. This is the first time it has been deployed, but she doesn't seem to realize you were the one who activated it. She explained to several others that she must have triggered some unknown failsafe left by the ancient radiance. She thinks that I must be dead after all this time, since the tower doesn't work. Curious, Navani said. Why would she think that? The Midnight Mother told her that unmade, who infected me for so many years, the one your radiance frightened away. I remained hidden from her all that time, never fighting back. And so she thinks I died. All that time? Navani asked. How long? Centuries. Wasn't that hard? No. Why? Centuries mean nothing to me. I do not age. Other spren act like time has meaning? Radiant spren, yes. Radiant spren put on a show, pretending as if they are male or female, male or female-in, when they are neither. They think like humans because they want to be like humans. I do not pretend. I am not human. I do not need to care about time. I do not need to look like you. I do not need to beg for your attention. Navani cocked an eyebrow at that, considering that the sibling had needed to beg for her help. She held her tongue. How to best use this advantage? What was the path to freedom? Navani liked to think that she could see patterns, that she could make order from chaos. There was a way out of this mess. She had to believe that. Treat it like any other problem, Navani thought to herself. Approach it systematically, breaking it down into manageable pieces. Last night, she decided on a few general courses of action. First, she had to maintain the ground she'd already obtained. That meant making certain the sibling's shield remained in place. Second, she had to get word to Dalinar and those on the outside, apprising them of what had happened. Third, Navani needed to figure out what the enemy had done to negate radiant powers. According to the sibling, it involved a corruption of ancient tower protections. Navani needed to deactivate it. Finally, she needed to turn that power upon the invaders. Barring that, she needed to use the awakened radiance to mount a counterattack. Standing here, trapped in the basement and constantly watched, Those seemed impossible tasks. But her scholars had made a ship fly. She could do this with their help. Navani counted off the singer guards as they strolled through the room, looking over the shoulders of working scholars. One stopped the girls carrying out notes and checked through the boxes. That one fused, the one who kept moving her head from one side to the other, humming a loud rhythm, was watching Navani at the moment. Navani tried not to let that unnerve her, and turned her head so her lips wouldn't be visible, then continued talking under her breath. Let's assume, she said, that Raboniel is smart enough to figure out what those ancient radiants did in creating this shield for you. What would be the best way for her to go about circumventing it? The sibling didn't respond, and Navani began to worry. Has something happened? Are you well? I am fine, the sibling said. But we are not friends, human. You are a slaver. I do not trust you. You've trusted me so far. Out of necessity, I am safe now. And for how long will you be safe? You're saying there is no way for Raboniel to get through? The sibling didn't respond. Fine, Navani said. But I can't plan a way to help you if I don't know your weaknesses. You'll be alone, subject to whatever Raboniel decides to do. I hate humans, the sibling eventually said. Humans twist what is said and always make themselves out to be right. How long until you demand that I bond the human, give up my freedom, and risk my life? I'm sure you'll have wonderful explanations as to why I should absolutely do that. This time, Navani was the one who remained silent. The sibling could create another bondsmith, and considering how useful Dalinar's powers were to the war effort, Navani would be foolish not to seize the opportunity so she would need to find a way to make the sibling bond a human again. She'd have to find someone completely unthreatening, someone who didn't work with fabrils, someone who wasn't a politician, someone the sibling would like. For now, Navani didn't prod. The sibling clearly had some strange ways, but their interactions so far had been quite human, despite what they claimed and Navani would expect a human to. The shield we created is something Raboniel might have heard about, the siblings said at last. Therefore she might understand how to circumvent it. Tell me more, Navani said. The shield is an extrapolation of the surge of soul casting. It solidifies the air in a region by persuading it that it is glass. For the shield to be maintained, the system needs to be fed by external sources of stormlight. Raboniel might realize this, especially if she researches the remnants of the node you used to activate the shield. There are other nodes like that one, with crystals connected directly to my heart. There were four. You destroyed one. If she finds one of the other three, She could use it to corrupt me from the outside. So we need to find them first, Navani said, and destroy them. No, no! That will weaken the shield, then destroy it. We need to defend them. Breaking one was bad enough. Do not think because I gave you permission once you can continue to do this. Humans always break things. Navani took a deep breath. She had to speak very carefully. I won't break any of them unless it's absolutely necessary. Let's talk about something else. How did you contact me earlier? Can you work a span reed? I hate the things, but using one was necessary. Yes, but how? Do you have hands somewhere? Just helpers? There is an insane woman locked in a monastery who I contacted. Those isolated, those with permeable souls, respond better to spren. sometimes. This one, however, only wrote down everything I said, never responding. I had Dabid bring her a span read, and I communicated through her. Drat. That didn't seem particularly useful at least now that span reads weren't working. How is it that the enemy knocked the radiance unconscious? Navani asked. It is an aspect of Ur, the tower, the siblings said. A defense set up to prevent the fused and the unmade, depending on circumstances, from entering it. I encountered a fabriel designed to do the same one I think must have been modeled after part of the crystal pillar. I don't mean to be rude, but did you not consider activating this defense when they attacked? The sibling fell silent for a time, and Navani wondered if she had pushed the Sprend too far. Fortunately, they spoke again, softly. I have been wounded thousands of years ago. Something happened that changed the singers. It hurt me, too. Navani covered her shock. You're speaking of the binding, of that unmade, which made the singers lose their forms? Yes, that terrible act touched the souls of all who belonged to Roshar, Spren, too. How have no Spren mentioned this? I don't know but I lost the rhythm of my light that day. The tower stopped working. My father, Honor, should have been able to help me, but he was losing his mind, and he soon died. There was enough sorrow in the sibling's voice that Navani didn't push them for answers. This changed everything. When that fused touched me, the sibling continued, She corrupted part of me to the tone of odium. This wouldn't have been possible once, but it is now. She fills my system with his light, ruining me, corrupting me. So, Navani said, if we could find a way to destroy the void light inside you, or somehow recover the rhythm you lost, you could reactivate the tower to our defense. I suppose. It doesn't seem possible. I feel. like we're doomed. The mood shift seemed familiarly human. Indeed, Navani felt a little of the same. She rested her head against the wall, closing her eyes. Break it down into little pieces, she reminded herself. Protect the sibling long enough to figure out the other problems that's your first task. You didn't fill out a map all at once. You did it one line at a time. That was the soul of discovery. But, the siblings said. But, Navani said, opening her eyes. But what? But we might not need to wake up any radiance. There are two in the tower who are still awake. Again, Navani nearly broke her calm facade. Why hadn't the sibling mentioned this immediately? How? One makes sense to me, the sibling said. She is awake because she was created, oddly, to use light differently from others. She was made by my mother for this purpose. But I have lost track of her, and I do not know where she is. A young woman, edge dancer. Lift, Navani said. That one always had been strange. You can't see her any more. No. I think one reason I can see parts of the tower has to do with Radiance, who are connected to me. I caught glimmers of this edge dancer girl for a while, but she vanished yesterday. She was in a cage, and I suspect they surrounded her with ralcalest. But there is one other, a man. He must be of the fourth ideal, but he has no armour. So maybe of the third, but close to the fourth. Perhaps it is something about his closeness to my father, and his closeness to the surge of adhesion, that keeps him conscious. His power is that of bonds. This man is a wind runner, but no longer wears a uniform. Kaladin, can you contact him?
1: Kaladin's first goal was stormlight. Fortunately, he knew exactly where to find some infused spheres. Workers frequently erected gemstone lanterns in busier corridors, pushing away the darkness and making the interior more welcoming and comfortable. One such project had been happening on the sixth floor, far enough from his family's clinic that he felt it wasn't too dangerous to try approaching. He started by feeling his way through the darkened hallways near his hiding place on the 11th floor. Together with Sill, he made a mental map of the area, then inched to the perimeter. Kaladin felt like he was leaving a slaver's cage when he saw that first glimmer of sunlight in the distance, and had to keep himself from running all out to reach it. Slow, steady, Careful, he let Sill explore on ahead. She snuck up to the balcony, then peeked out. Kaladin crouched in the darkness, waiting, watching, listening. Finally, she darted back and made a swirl in the air, the signal that she hadn't seen anything suspicious. He emerged into the light. He tried to memorize the strata here in this outermost hallway, then glanced over his shoulder back into the bowels of the 11th floor. That corridor was basically a straight shot to his hiding place. His stupid brain imagined forgetting the way and leaving Teft to die, wasting away, perhaps waking at the end. Alone, trapped, terrified. Kaladin shook his head, then inched out into a balcony room, where he could survey the exterior of the tower. They hadn't seen a single guard while walking here. Glancing out, he didn't see a single heavenly one flying. What was happening? Had they retreated for some reason? No, he still felt the oppressive dullness, the sign of whatever they'd done to suppress the radiance. Kaladin leaned out farther. On the plateaus, he saw figures in blue uniforms guarding the oath gates in their usual locations. He felt a spike of relief and even disbelief. Had it all been some terrible nightmare? Kaladin, Syl hissed, someone's coming. The two of them pressed their backs to the nearby wall as a group of figures passed through the hallway outside. They were speaking to the rhythms, in Azish. Singer guards, Kaladin caught a glimpse of them carrying spears. He almost jumped, but restrained himself. There would be an easier and less blatant way of getting a proper weapon. The enemy was clearly still in control, and as he considered it, the truth occurred to him. They're making the outside of the tower look like nothing has happened, he whispered to Sill after the patrol had passed. They know Dalinar will send windrunners to scout the tower once communication fails, so the enemy is trying to pretend the place hasn't been conquered. Those are either fused illusions or human sympathizers, perhaps the remnants of Amaram's army wearing stolen uniforms. And wind runners won't be able to get close enough to discover the truth, lest their powers fail, Sill said. That part will be suspicious, Kaladin said. The enemy can't keep this going for long. The two moved to a nearby stairwell. It didn't seem to be guarded, but he sent Syl ahead to check anyway. Then they started down, finding the 10th, 9th, and 8th floors relatively unguarded. There was simply too much space up here to watch it all. Though they did spot one other patrol at the tower's perimeter, it was easy going until they reached the seventh floor. Here, leading down to the more populated sixth floor, they found guards at the bottom of the first five stairwells they tried. They had to move inward and find a small out-of-the-way stairwell that Syl remembered. Reaching it meant entering the darkness again. To Kaladin, sunlight was as vital as food or water. Leaving it was agony, but he did it. And as hoped, the smaller still well was unguarded. They emerged onto the sixth floor in quiet darkness. It seemed most of the tower's human population was still confined to quarters. The enemy was working on how to rule this place, which should leave Kaladin with an opening. With that in mind— He sent Syl on a task. She zipped out toward the balcony rooms, leaving him crouched in the stairwell, armed with his scalpel. Kaladin shivered, wishing he had a coat or jacket. It felt colder now than it ever had in the tower. Whatever the enemy had done to stop the radiance had also interfered with the tower's other functions. That made him worry about the people. Syl eventually returned. Your family is confined to quarters like everyone else, she said softly but there are actual guards at their door. I didn't dare try to talk to your father or mother, but I saw them together through the window. They look healthy, if frightened. Kaladin nodded. That was the best he could have hoped for, he supposed. Hopefully his father had talked his way out of trouble, as he'd said. Together, Kaladin and Sill snuck inward to the hallway where the lanterns were being installed. The workers had left a pile of lanterns here, along with tools for drilling their mountings into the rock. They hadn't left gemstones in the equipment piles, and the lanterns in this particular corridor were empty. But in the next corridor over, the lanterns had been fitted with amethysts, mid-sized gemstones for light, a little larger than a brome. That meant a lot of stormlight, if he could get it out. What do you think? Kaladin asked Sill. Grab a crowbar and snap them quickly, then run for it? Seems like that would make a lot of noise, she said, landing on one of the lanterns. I could just steal the stormlight and infuse the spheres I've been carrying. I wish I could get some of these gemstones, though. I need a better reserve. We could try to find the lampkeeper and get her keys, Sill said. The one assigned to this floor is a light-eyed woman who lives somewhere on the third floor, I think. Lopin tried to get her to go to dinner with him. Of course he did, Sill said, but as I think about it, trying to find her seems like it would be difficult and dangerous. Agreed. She stood on the top of the glowing lantern, then flitted around to the side, becoming a ribbon of light, and zipped in through the lantern's small keyhole. Although she couldn't pass through solid objects, squeezing through a crack or hole usually served well enough. Her ribbon wound around inside the lantern. These were sturdy iron devices built to resist break-ins. They had glass sides, but those were reinforced with a lattice of metal. A key would unlock one of the faces, letting you swing it open and access the inside. The other faces of the lantern could be unlatched from the inside and could open as well. Sill flew over to one of these latches and formed into a person again. Theoretically, if you didn't have a key, you could break the glass and use a wire to manually turn the inside latches to open one of the faces. But the device had been designed to make this difficult, with thick glass and that iron webbing behind. Syl tried pushing on the latch, but it was too heavy for her. She put her hands on her hips, glaring at it. Try a lashing, Syl called, her voice echoing against the glass, louder than her tiny form would have suggested. Lashings don't work, Kaladin said softly, keeping an eye down the corridor for guard patrols. Gravitational lashings don't work, Sill said. The other ones do though, right? Windrunners had three varieties of lashings. Most commonly, he used the gravitational lashing, where you infused an object or person and changed the direction gravity pulled them. But there were two others. He'd tested a full lashing while carrying Teft to the clinic during the invasion. That lashing allowed you to infuse an object with light and command it to stick to anything that touched it. He'd used it during his early days as a bridge man to stick rocks to a chasm wall. The last lashing was the most strange and arcane of the three. The reverse lashing made something attract other objects. It was like a hybrid of the other two you infused a surface then commanded it to pull on specific items they were drawn to it as if as if the object you infused had become the source of gravity as a bridgeman callton had unknowingly used this lashing to pull arrows through the air to his bridge making them swerve to miss his friends what you call lashings sill said to him are really two surges working together Gravitation and adhesion, combined in different ways. You say gravitation lashings don't work and adhesion ones do. What about a reverse lashing? Haven't tried, Kaladin admitted. He stepped to the side and drew the stormlight out of a different lantern. He felt the energy, the power in his veins, something he'd been yearning for. He smiled and stepped back, alight with power. Try making the glass attract the latch, Sill said, gesturing. If you can get the latch to move toward you, it will pop out and unlock. He touched the side of the lantern housing. During the last year, he'd practiced his lashings. Sigzel had monitored, making him do experiments as usual. They'd found that a reverse lashing required a command, or at least a visualization of what you wanted. As he infused the glass, he tried to imagine the stormlight attracting things. No, not things the latch specifically. The stormlight resisted. As with the basic gravitational lashing, he could feel the power, but something blocked it. However, the blockage was weaker here. He concentrated, pushing harder, and, like a floodgate opening, the light suddenly burst from him. A reverse lashing didn't glow as brightly as it should, considering the stormlight. It was kind of inverted in a way, but Kaladin's actions were followed by a faint click. The power had attracted the latch which, pulled by that unseen force, had popped free of its housing. Eager, Kaladin slipped the front of the lantern open, then plucked the gemstone out and slipped it into his pocket. Syl zipped out. We need more practice on these, Kaladin. You don't use them as instinctively as the other two. He nodded, thoughtful, and reclaimed the stormlight he'd pressed into the lantern housing. Then the two of them moved furtively along the corridor, dropping it into darkness with each gemstone stolen. Reverse lashings take effort, Kaladin told Syl softly. It makes me wonder, though, if I could somehow make basic gravitational lashings function. He'd come to rely on those in a fight, the ability to leap into the air, to send his opponent flying off, even the simple ability to make himself lighter so he flowed more easily through the battle. He finished off the last of the lanterns, satisfied with the healthy pocketful of stormlight. A fortune by hearthstone terms, though he'd started to grow accustomed to having that much on hand. With these gemstones secured in a dark pouch so his pocket wouldn't glow, the two of them set off on their next task, supplies. They kept to the inner part of the floor this time, where they'd be able to see a patrol coming by the light it carried. Caledon led Sill down some steps as he had a good idea of where to get food and water. As he'd hoped, the monastery in the middle of the fourth floor wasn't a high priority to guard. He found a pair of singers in uniform occupying one watch post along the way, but was able to sneak down a side corridor and find a completely unguarded door. Caledon and Sill entered, then crept through a corridor lined with cells. He still thought of them that way, even though the Ardens here insisted they weren't a prison. Of course, the rooms the Ardens themselves stayed in were properly lit, furnished, and downright homey. Caledon found one of these by the light under the door, checked the glyph painted on the wood, then slipped in. He startled the Ardent inside, the same man he'd met during his earlier visit to this place. Kuno, Caledon had learned his name was. The ardent had been reading, but scrambled, and failed, to pull his spectacles down onto his eyes as Kaladin crossed the room in a rush and made a shushing gesture. Are there other guards? Kaladin whispered. I saw two at the front gate. No, Bright Lord, Kuno said, spectacles dangling loosely from his fingers. I, uh, how, how are you here? By the grace of God or luck, I haven't decided which. I need supplies. Rations, jugs of water, medical supplies if you have any. The man stuttered, then leaned close, ignoring the spectacles in his hand as he squinted at Kaladin. By the Almighty! It really is you! Storm blessed! Do you have the things I need? Yes, yes, Kuno said, rising and running his hand across his shaved head, then led the way out of the room. You were right, Sill said from Kaladin's shoulder as he followed. They probably secured all the guard posts, clinics, and barracks, but an out-of-the-way sanitarium. Kuno took them to a little storeroom. Inside, Kaladin was able to find almost everything he needed. A hospital robe and bedpan for theft, various other articles of clothing, a sponge and washbasin, even a large syringe for feeding someone unconscious. Kaladin packed these into a sack along with bandages, fathom bark for pain, and some antiseptic. Some dried rations followed, mostly soul-cast, but they'd do. He tied four wooden jugs of water to a rope he could sling around his neck, then noticed a bucket with some cleaning supplies in it. He picked out four brushes with thick bristles and sturdy wooden handles used for scrubbing floors. Need to wash some floors, Radiant? The ardent said. No, but I can't fly anymore, so I need these, Kaladin said, stuffing them in his bag. You don't have any broth, do you? Not handy, Kuno said. Pity, what about a weapon? A weapon? Why would you need one? You have your blade. Doesn't work right now, Kaladin said. Well, we don't keep weapons here, Bright Lord, Kuno said, wiping his face, which was dripping with sweat. Storms, you mean, you're going to fight them? Resist them, at least. Kaladin put the rope with the jugs around his neck, then stood with some effort and settled the weights of the cord didn't bite too harshly. Don't tell anyone about me. I don't want you getting taken in for questioning. I will need more supplies. You, you're going to return? Do this regularly? The man pulled his spectacles off and wiped his face again. Kaladin reached out and put his hand on the man's shoulder. If we lose the tower, we lose the war. I'm not in any shape to fight. I'm going to do it anyway. I don't need you to lift a spear, but if you could get me some broth and refill my water jugs every couple of days. The man nodded. All right, I can, I can do that. Good man, Kaladin said. As I said, keep this quiet. I don't want the general public getting it into their heads that they should pick up a spear and start fighting against Fused. If there's a way out of this mess, it will involve me either getting word to Dalinar or somehow waking the other Radiants. He drew in a little stormlight. He would need it to help him carry all this. And seeing the glow gave the ardent an obvious boost of confidence. Life before death, Kaladin said to him. Life before death, Radiant, Kuno said. Kaladin picked up his sacks and started out into the darkness. It was slow going but he eventually arrived on the 11th floor. Here he oriented himself while Syl poked around to see if she could remember the way. They needn't have worried. A small spark of light appeared in a vein of garnet on the floor. They followed the light to the room where they had left Teft. The door opened easily without needing more stormlight. Inside, Kaladin set down his supplies, checked on his friend, then started a better inventory of what he'd grabbed. The garnet light sparkled on the floor beside him, and he brushed the crystal vein with his fingers. A voice immediately popped into his head. "Hi, Marshal, is it true? Are you awake and functioning? Kaladin started. It was the Queen's voice.
0: Brightness, Navani? Kaladin's voice said in Navani's head. I am awake basically functioning. My powers are acting strange. I don't know why I'm not comatose, like the others. Novani drew in a long, deep breath. The sibling had watched him sneak to the fourth floor, then raid a monastery for supplies. While he'd been returning, Novani had done several circuits of her room, talking to her scholars and giving them encouragement to not draw suspicion. Now she was back in position, resting against the wall, trying to look bored. She was anything but. She had access to a night radiant, perhaps two, if the sibling could locate lift. That is well, she whispered, the sibling transferring her words to Kaladin. For now I am reluctantly working with our captors. They have me and my scholars locked away in the eastern basement study room near the gemstone pillar. Do you know what's wrong with the radiance? He asked. To an extent, yes, she whispered. The details are somewhat technical, but the tower had ancient protections to defend it from enemies who were using void light. A fused scholar inverted this. It now suppresses those who would use storm light. She did not complete the tower's corruption, however. I narrowly prevented her from doing so by erecting a barrier around the pillar. Unfortunately, that same barrier prevents me from undoing the work she did there. So, what do we do? I don't know, Navani admitted. Dalinar would have probably told her to act strong, to pretend she had a plan when she didn't. But she wasn't a general. Pretending never worked with her scholars. They appreciated honesty. I've barely had time to plan, and I'm still dragging from yesterday. I know that feeling, Kaladin said. The enemy has made the Oath Gates work somehow, Navani said, a plan forming in her mind. My first goal is to continue protecting the sibling, the Spren of the Tower. My second goal is to get word to my husband and the other monarchs. If we could figure out, how the enemy is making the oath gates work. I might be able to get my span reeds functioning and send warning. That sounds like a pretty good start, Brightness, Kaladin said. I'm glad to have a direction to work toward. So, you want me to find out how they're operating the oath gates? Exactly. My only guess is that they are powering them with void light somehow, but I tried to make Fabriels use void light in the past and failed. I know for a fact, however, that the enemy has functional span reeds. I haven't been able to get a good look at one of those, but if you could find out how they're using the oath gates, or other Fabrials, that would give me something to work with. I'd need to get close to the oath gates to do that, Kaladin said, and not be seen doing so. Yes. Can you manage that? I know you said your powers aren't functioning completely. I. I'll find a way, Brightness. I suspect the enemy won't be using the Oath Gates until nighttime. I think they're trying to keep up a front of nothing being wrong with the tower, in case Dalinar sends scouts. They have some humans wearing Alethi uniforms patrolling outside. At night, even distant Wind Runners trying to watch would be visible in the darkness. I suspect they'd find this a safer time to use the Oath Gates. Curious indeed. How long did Raboniel realistically think she could keep up such a subterfuge? Surely Dalinar would withdraw from the battlefield in Aesir and focus everything on discovering what was wrong with Eurythiru, unless there were aspects to this that Navani wasn't considering. The implications of that frightened her. She was blind, locked away in this basement. Hi, Marshal, she said to Kaladin. I'll try to contact you again tomorrow around the same time. Until then, be warned. The enemy will be seeking a way to disrupt the shield I erected. There are three nodes hidden in the tower, large gemstones infused with stormlight that are maintaining the barrier, but the sibling won't say where they are. These nodes are direct channels to the heart of the tower, and as such, are great points of vulnerability. If you find one, tell me. And be aware, if the enemy gains access to it, they can complete the tower's corruption. Yes, sir, uh, brightness. I need to go. Lift is awake somewhere too, so it would be worth keeping an eye out for her. At any rate, take care, High Marshal. If the task proves too dangerous, retreat. We are too few right now to take unwise risks. Understood. After a moment's pause, the sibling's voice continued. He has gone back to unpacking his supplies. You should be careful, though, how you ask after Fabriels. Do not forget that I consider what you have done to be a high crime. I've not forgotten, Navani said but surely you don't oppose the Oath Gates. I do not, the Spren said, sounding reluctant. Those Spren have gone willingly to their transformations. Do you know why it works? Powering the Oath Gates with void light? No, the Oath Gates are not part of me. I will leave you now. Our talking is suspicious. Navani didn't press the matter instead making another circuit around her scholars. She wasn't certain whether she trusted what the siblings said. Could Spren lie? She didn't think she'd ever ask the Radiance Spren. a foolish oversight. At any rate, in Kaladin, she at least had a connection to the rest of the tower, a lifeline that was one step forward in finding a way out of this mess.